Physics World. Hello, welcome to the Physics World weekly podcast. I'm James Dacey, a science journalist based in Madrid, Spain. This week and next week, I'll be hosting a two-part special about climate science and how physical scientists can help to tackle the climate crisis. Next week, world leaders will gather in Glasgow for the United Nations COP26 Climate Summit. Hopes are pinned on politicians committing to ambitious actions to decarbonise societies and adapt to global warming in a sustainable and socially just way. But of course words are easy and the hard work will begin after the event in making real world changes. In this transition, physicists and other related scientists have key roles to play by informing the political debates and helping to develop solutions. Later in the episode, we'll look in detail at the process of modelling the global climate and you'll find out why clouds are full of mysteries that keep climate scientists awake at night. First though, I'm going to look at what rising global temperatures means for our health. I began by speaking with Michelle Bell at Yale University in the US. So I'm a professor of environmental health at the Yale School of the Environment, and I have secondary appointments at the School of Public Health and Environmental Engineering. So as you might suspect from that, I like to do interdisciplinary research, and I'm primarily interested how, in how environmental conditions impact human health. So things like air pollution, heat waves, and other weather events. And I'm particularly interested in how these associations between environment and health could be changing under climate change, and also the area of environmental justice, by which I mean, are some people more sensitive or susceptible or more highly exposed and so on to have a higher public health burden from environmental conditions than other populations? Maybe focusing on on one of those things, which is um, heat waves and extreme heat. So you mentioned environmental justice there. So I guess the issue is not so much the heat, it's where heat... Um, overlaps with vulnerable populations. You know, maybe could you say something about th- the conditions that exist which can leave people um, vulnerable to extreme heat? You know, what, what is the combination of conditions and also some of the economic and underlying health factors which, which can lead to that um, dangerous situation? Well, as you mentioned, the, the issues that lead to environmental justice are multifaceted. It's not just an issue of higher exposure, although you can have that for some environmental conditions, but you have a lot of social, cultural, economic, historical, and ongoing uh, things that are happening that really place some people at higher risk. So using the example of heat waves that you brought up, you can imagine people have different housing structures. Some people may have no air conditioning. Some people may have central air conditioning. Some people may have air conditioning but not have the economic ability to turn it on just whenever they feel like it. Some people work outdoors and don't have the option to go inside. Some people don't. Uh, People have different access to health care and also our baseline health, our, our nutritional status, our previous environmental exposures and other stresses also impact how we respond to environmental conditions such as heat waves. So there's really a lot of different things that can come into play to make some people have a higher health burden from things like heat waves than other people. And what are some of the things that actually happen to people when you're exposed to heat? I mean, obviously, in very extreme cases, it 
it, it can result in death. But could you perhaps go through some of the, the different health outcomes that, that can happen as a result of exposure to extreme heat? Well, one of the things that I like to emphasize in, in my class is that when we think about the health outcomes for an environmental condition such as heat waves, it's not only the most obvious ones. So if you look at ICD code, so that's the code that the physician is, might put on a hospital admission, there may be some that are heat related, but that doesn't mean those are the only ones that are going to be relevant. So some people, unfortunately, might have premature mortality. Other people might be hospitalized. Other people might feel feel ill. Uh, some people might have trouble breathing. Um, you can imagine anything from lost work days up through mortality are really relevant. And this is something that I think is often missing from you know, the stories we see in the, in the general media and when people talk about heat waves or just environmental conditions more broadly. It's that it's really not just one type of health outcome, but a whole range of different types of health outcomes. And, and heat waves is an example. And, and in terms of heat, I know it's not just the heat that can be an issue. It's, it's when it's combined with high humidity as well. And that combination can be particularly dangerous. Um, projecting ahead, are there any parts of the world, um, zones of the world, which could be at particular risk to changing conditions and, and having that combination of heat and humidity? Yeah, so I think the issue of what parts of the world and then what people within those parts of the world are most vulnerable to heat waves under a changing climate is really interesting. And as you mentioned, it's not just heat, but heat in combination with, with other factors and so on. It's also not just the weather that day, but what weather are you used to? So for example, some work done by my former team member, Brooke Anderson, looked at heat waves in the United States. And the places that were the most hard hit were not the places that are the hottest because people tend to acclimate, people have different housing structures and so on. So you know, the southeastern part of the U.S. is hotter than the northeastern part of the U.S., but the northeastern part of the U.S. Has, can have more of a public health response to heat waves. And so you can imagine that across the world, if you have higher temperatures in places that people aren't used to having high temperatures, then that can really make those people particularly vulnerable. I also want to emphasize that places that already have high temperatures, you know, could be and are quite likely going to be, if they're not already, facing even more extreme conditions. And one of my other former team members, Amruta Norisarma, did some work on heat waves in India. And here we're talking about extreme conditions where like, you know, she has photos of like the pavement melting. It's crazy. Wow. <laughs> These are this, this is not some movie. This is real life conditions that people are faced with. And in a lot of those populations, people work outside. The housing for some of those people may not be fully fully sealed or able to be cooled, even if they could afford it. Many of them cannot, of course. And so those those parts of the world also could be particularly vulnerable. So really, this is a very widespread issue to think about heat waves and, and who's going to be susceptible across the world. From talking with Michelle Bell, it's clear that the problem is not so much how hot it is, but where that heat is occurring and who lives in those places. Older people and people with underlying health conditions are particularly at risk. There's also a growing body of research finding that heat can affect different neighbourhoods within the same city in very different ways. Part of this urban inequality is a result of the city's infrastructure, which leads to something called the urban heat island effect. Here's Eunice Lowe, an environmental researcher at the University of Bristol in the UK, to explain more. So the urban heat island effect is when um, the ur urban areas are warmer than the surrounding rural or 
suburban areas and um, is normally uh, more pronounced at night and um, the urban heat island in fact is the result of you know you have urban structures like concrete and you have roads and you have less vegetation in an urban area normally so this all contributes to kind of warmer air temperature um, in the urban area like in a city compared to the surroundings um, and this is you know this makes on top of a global warming trend or you know a larger general trend in spatial terms you add a couple degrees or more depending on where you are um to an urban like to a city so people in cities are kind of exposed to higher temperatures if urban heat island exists and this makes um if there's a heat wave then that's an additional amount of heat that people will be experiencing and, and i know there have been studies in the us which show that so, so within a city the neighbourhoods which are um, particularly vulnerable, it, it's often divided along economic and, and racial lines where certain communities are, are more vulnerable. Um, and, and so one of the solutions is to, to, to bring in more urban greening, so to add vegetation to, the, to these areas. I mean, c- could you perhaps talk about that solution and, and whether there are other possible solutions um, which could moderate the, the effect of uh, urban heat island? Um, yeah, I think urban urban greening is one of them, um, and that can be in terms of having parks, larger parks and and lakes in the park um, in in the city. And uh, people have also talked about, you know, building buildings that have green roof or even you know lighter roofs because they reflect more sunlight. Um, and that's a an urban planning problem and you know engineering problem. And um, yeah, there's a lot of, I think, yeah, as you mentioned, in, in America, there's been studies about um, who were more vulnerable to, to extreme heat and, and the health impacts of them and um, poverty and age and, you know, race and all come into kind of, you know, the, the, the picture. And um, yeah, this is something that, um, you know, researchers are looking at. In Eunice Lowe's research, she combines climate models with health data to see the public health implications of different climate scenarios. In a recent study of 15 US cities, Lowe's group found that limiting warming to 2 degrees over pre-industrial levels could avoid thousands of heat-related deaths, compared with the 3 degrees rise we're heading towards by the end of the century based on current emissions trends. Lowe is also finding that her research is connecting with fellow academics on a personal level. And I actually presented this paper um, to an audience in Sweden in a conference. And someone then, after the talk, someone came to me saying that they, they, their grandma, grandparents live in Miami, which is one of the places I looked at. And he knows that, you know, people of older age are more vulnerable. And by looking at my talk, he really is thinking about you know, his grandma and how she's doing. And, you know, it's, it's very relatable when we do research on, you know, health. And um, and I think that's something we should be looking at more because, um, yeah, climate change affects all of us in many different ways and, and health is one of them. And it's one of the important aspects that's being affected. I mean, that, that was one of the things I was going to ask you. I mean, it's it's clear, I suppose, from your background. I think did you study physics um, initially? Um, I saw from your 
your biog and now you're working in climate change where yeah. obviously the physics is that that side of things that the technical side is very important but you're dealing with issues like you say that affect people's um, everyday lives that go far beyond physics itself um, yeah. uh, but what what is it about your background in physics that you think really prepares you um, so well to, to work in this field uh, are there any specific things that you think are, have really helped you Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting, interesting question. Um, yeah, so my undergrad was, um, I went to Durham University for physics and astronomy degree. And, um, and then I did a PhD in meteorology, mainly focusing on climates. Yeah, I, I think I think two things that come to mind when I think about how my physics degree kind of helped with my current research, although they can be quite different. Um, so first of all, it's a really technical thing of programming. <laughs> <laughs> I did yeah. learn programming for my un in my undergrad um, mm -hmm. when I did projects on astronomy. I remember like my first project was to kind of track a certain star. I think in we were given a video of of space and we had to track a star and the velocity of it and all that. Um, writing writing program to do that and i remember not doing very well in that. <laughs> but since then i've improved um so yeah early start in um, learning programming helps my current research because um i still write programs nearly on a daily basis when i'm doing research that's what i do because i don't do field work it's all on the computer um, and plotting all the graphics and graphs also needs programming all the analyses um all the statistical analyses and Climate modeling is is all programming, so yeah, that's helped me. And also um, because uh, well, I look at mainly atmospheric physics, so you know, background in physics helped in terms of when I was doing the PhD, especially, um, you know, understanding the fundamental physics in the atmosphere. Um, some some of the maths that I learned uh, was needed. Um, you know, solving equations in, in climate models and so on. So yeah, I think I think my physics degree definitely prepared me um, to do my PhD and my current job. And I know quite a lot of people um, in climate science or meteorology who've come from a physics background. One of the messages you're probably starting to take from this podcast is that climate hazards are messy and complicated. They're also interconnected, where one hazard can provoke another. In the case of heat, it can increase the risk of wildfire and air pollution. But of course, poor air quality happens for many reasons, with both short-term and long-term health impacts. And the different causes often affect the same less affluent communities, creating a vicious circle for public health. Here's Michelle Bell again to explain how she makes sense of all the complexity. Yeah, so there's a there's a lot of connections. So there there are scientific connections in the way that air pollution is formed. So as an example, ozone is higher in the summer and higher during the day than nighttime, and so on. And that's because temperature, it's really sunlight, is making the chemical reaction rates that form ozone run faster, right? And then there are some ways in which temperature can increase uh, secondary formation of particles as well. And then the biogenic precursor emissions to ozone, uh, some of those can be higher under high temperatures. So even if all emissions, anthropogenic emissions of air pollution were to stay the same, if we have higher temperature, we're going to have higher air pollution. So there's this the scientific formation issue. And then there's also some 
health connections where some of the same health outcomes can, can come into play. Premature mortality is associated with heat waves and air pollution and so on. This is kind of, kind of obvious. I just want to make the point. Uh, in terms of the scientific interaction, like is, is the health impact of, of pollution with high heat different from the health impacts of those two events separately? There's some evidence that suggests there is some interaction happening. I would argue that that, that research uh, still needs to be conducted. It's an active area of research where I think there's a lot of suggestive evidence, but there's also a lot that we still need to learn. But I do want to raise one more point of, of overlap, which is that of policy. So you could imagine some of the policies that might impact heat waves could also impact air pollution. And I'll just give one example. You might imagine uh, increase in public transportation that might lower greenhouse gas emissions and therefore help address climate change in the future, which is impacting heat waves. And going to public transportation can also lower emissions of air pollution and air pollution precursors. So there's all these different overlaps from science to health to also policy. I, mean, I guess, yeah, that, that could definitely make it more appealing as well, saying that, you know, we're addressing climate change, but it's something that's good to do anyway, and it's, it's going to have a positive health benefit. So it's, it's a double bonus, I suppose. Yeah. In, in the field, this is often called co-benefits, mm-hmm. or it's, it's really co-impacts. Co-benefits kind of assumes we know the answer is going to be positive, but turns out it is. So that's why people use co-benefits. And that's that exact idea you were mentioning of a kind of win-win. There are a lot mm-hmm. of policies we can do that can help improve public health and environmental conditions in the short term, and also lower our emissions of greenhouse gases. And I suppose talking of air pollution as well, I mean, another uh, well, one particular source of that is fires, um, forest fires, wildfires. And I know that's another area which climate research is looking at, how that might change in, in a warming planet. Um, so is, is that something your research addresses as well? Absolutely. We've done a lot of work looking at wildfires. So my former PhD student, Coco Liu, published several landmark papers looking at how wildfire smoke impacts human health, impacts risk of hospital emissions for for older populations. This was in the western part of the U.S. And one of the key advances of her work was that we were able to separate the air pollution from wildfires from air pollution more broadly. So it wasn't just looking at what happens on a day of wildfires or looking at air pollution on the day of wildfires. We worked with a, a wildfire modeler named Loretta Mickley at Harvard, and we're able to disentangle the impacts of air pollution from wildfires from air pollution of traffic and other sources. And so that paper and its papers from other researchers showed that air pollution from wildfires can be very, very harmful for human health. And then also, of course, we wanna think about wildfires under a changing climate. So while the wildfire season is anticipated to last longer, the wildfires are anticipated to last longer themselves and also to be more intense, so to to burn hotter. Um, And we see that in much of the world, you know, growing up, there was an expression, oh, the world is on fire, meaning things are going crazy. But the world really is on fire right now, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, And so we're we and, and many other researchers as well are doing work looking at not just how wildfires impact human health, but how climate change could impact wildfires, could impact human health. And so an upcoming study that I'm excited about, which is going to be funded by the Health Effects Institute, is to look at how mother's exposure to wildfires during pregnancy impacts risk of adverse birth outcomes. So things like low birth weight and so on. And we're we're planning to do this in Australian cities. Um, I also think that we should be broadening our definition of human health impacts to consider mental health and well-being. 
I don't just mean the stress of a changing climate. So, you know, our children could be worried about what happens to them in the future. I'm also talking about things like migration and displacement. So you, just taking that as an example, you might have human health impacts on the community that loses people, on the receiving community that takes in a bunch of people. And then there have been studies looking at things like sanitation when you have refugees and infectious disease where you have people with different access to water sanitation and close proximity. But there's also an enormous mental health and well-being impact to people losing their homes. And I think if you look at some of the recent hurricanes and flooding events in the eastern part of the United States just in the past couple of months, you'll see you know, these news reports of these people just really incredibly distraught and devastated over what happened to their homes. And of course, this is happening to people on a global scale and to people who have much less economic agency to deal with things than, than many people in the U.S. So, so it sounds like you have a fair amount of interaction with the policy community and, and, and policy makers. What things do you do you know, as an academic researcher to make sure that your research can have a real world impact? Well, here's a, here's a question and a topic where I think different scientists have different comfort levels and skill levels and philosophies. Some scientists really like to be activists and be on the front line. Some scientists really like to be behind the scenes and just publish their papers. I view my role as one of not ever telling policymakers what to do. But I view my role as critically telling policymakers, communities, and so on. This is the, these are the scientific implications of your decision. This is, this is the public health impact of decisions A, B, and C. And that can really help and inform their inform their decisions. In terms of trying to make our world our, our world a better place, we really try to have all of the research in my team geared with real world policy relevant impact. So every study we do is either designed to be informative to policymakers, or, or I'm using the word policymaker broadly to people who make decisions to help people make the best decisions, or it's a piece of scientific evidence that we need to do the next study, which is going to be more directly used by policymakers. And that means I need to understand what policymakers and communities want. And so what I, what I don't want to do is just develop a bunch of science and then throw it over the fence and hope somebody picks it up one day. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of interaction with policymakers, and we actually have a policy and decision-making unit as part of one of our big projects. It's an EPA-funded project called the Search Center. And the policy and decision-making unit is led by Professor Dan Esty, who's joint between Yale's Environment School and the Law School. And he used to run the Connecticut Environmental Agency. So he has a lot of insight and contacts where we talk to policymakers. And a critical issue that we deal with is talking to policymakers and decision makers at early stages in the science. So it's great to talk to them about what we found and to do press releases and little short policy summaries. But at that point, the research has been conducted. What we try to do different than some people is talk to them early on. Like, this is our hypothesis. This is the study we're developing. Do you think this would be useful for you? And very often they come back with, with little tweaks or sometimes major tweaks to our research to say that's, that's informative. But if you looked at it in a slightly different way, we could use that information more directly. And so we really want to design the science from the beginning to be something that people can use and, and be the most informative as possible. So far in this podcast, I've spoken with two climate researchers focused on public health. There are other scientists out there who look at things like how future climates will affect economies or migration patterns or food security, issues which of course are interconnected. 
But let's take a step back now and look at the climate models themselves that underpin these studies. What are some of the uncertainties? I mean, for a long time, models have clearly revealed the influence of humans in driving up the average global temperature. But once we start to look at some of the fine details of how individual nations or even individual cities will be affected, there are still plenty of unknowns. There's always a trade-off between a model's resolution and the size of area it covers. One of the big challenges is understanding the role that clouds and water vapour will play in future climates. Here's Stephen Sherwood, an atmospheric scientist at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Clouds, um, of course, are forming all over the Earth all the time, and they have two main effects on climate. One is that they reflect sunlight back to space, and so that tends to make the world colder, but they also have a greenhouse effect. They uh, absorb infrared radiation, and they uh, what they emit out to space is a lot less than what they absorb, and so they end up um, adding to our energy budget, warming the place up. And those uh, the, the balance of those effects can go either way, depending on what kind of cloud it is. So um, high clouds that form way up near the stratosphere tend to warm the earth because they have a big greenhouse effect, whereas the sort of stuff that forms over oceans when they're cold uh, tends to cool the climate a lot because they reflect a lot of sunlight, but they're so close to the ground, they don't really have much greenhouse effect. So you can get either either way. And, and both of these effects are pretty large. So if you just look at the greenhouse effect by itself, uh, it's about 10 times bigger than the greenhouse effect of all the carbon dioxide that we've put into the atmosphere so far. Um, and the cooling effect that they have from reflecting sunlight is, is similar to the greenhouse effect. So clouds are two-faced. They both warm and cool the planet. Sherwood went on to tell me that as global temperature rises, climate scientists expect this balance to tip towards warming. In other words, taken as a whole, clouds will act to reinforce global warming. But the extent to which that will happen remains unclear. As Sherwood explains, part of the challenge is that we still don't fully understand the physics of cloud formation. So we don't really have a theory for cloud formation. We have other than the fact that we know that when air uh, becomes cold enough that it reaches what we call its dew point, then condensation will start to form. So if you pull uh, a cold bottle out of the fridge, you'll see condensation forming on the bottle very frequently. This is very dry in your house because it's cold enough that it's below that dew point. Uh, we know that. So that's basic physics. The problem, of course, is that a cloud has is, is a huge thing with all this air that's all doing different things and all has different temperatures and humidities. And the biggest computers in the world can't come anywhere near explicitly calculating all of that. So we then need to essentially guess um, rules of thumb that will predict how much cloud and what properties it has as a function of the average conditions over a large region. Um, like, you know, the size of some uh, shire in, in, in England, okay, the London area or, or uh, <laughs> yeah, Herefordshire or something like that. You know, based on knowing the temperature and humidity there, how many clouds are you going to get? And, and we haven't solved that problem. We've been working on it. We have rough, we have equations that we use and they, 
they work a lot of the time, but they don't always work. And they make big different predictions for what you're going to see in a hundred years from now in our atmosphere. And so that's one of the main uncertainties in climate science right now. So for the last, uh, gosh, what is it about, um, 15 years now, we've had a, uh, a LIDAR, uh, which is like a light radar flying in space, essentially X-raying the clouds underneath the satellite. And that tells you a lot. It tells you how thick the cloud is at every altitude below the satellite down to the ground tells you how much rain there is. So we've got a pretty good, and then we've got the measurements of the outgoing infrared radiation, the reflected sunlight, um, pretty good coverage going back a long way. So we've got lots and lots of data, petabytes, many, many petabytes of data. And um, the problem is we don't know how to turn that data into a prediction of the future. We only know how to tell what happened in the past. And, uh, Predicting the future is a difficult thing to do. So uh, it's all about using all that data to test our models and try to find models that do a good job of reproducing all of the things that those satellites have seen. And so far we can't, we, we don't have any models that correctly reproduce everything that satellites have seen and we're still working on it. You mentioned earlier that part of the issue is, is this fundamental understanding of how clouds are triggered and how, how clouds form. And I know there are some experiments, aren't there, like in, at CERN mm -hmm. um, in Switzerland, the particle physics lab, I know there was an experiment there called Cloud, which was, was trying to better understand this formation of, of clouds, essentially, um, from basic physics principles. Uh, are, are there other experiments like that uh, across the world? And, and will those experiments be key to um, improving our modeling capabilities? One of the uncertainties around clouds is uh, how you form clusters of water molecules, how you actually initiate the liquid phase of water in the air. Okay, on a surface like the glass bottle I mentioned before, taking out of the fridge, it's easy. You've got this cold glass surface and the water vapor molecules just stick to it. And that's pretty simple to uh, understand. But in the air, oh, you don't have any bottles floating around. so. The question then is, well, if I make the air really cold, what's going to happen? And and there's some issues there. You, you need the water to condense on little particles. But if you cool the air fast enough, you can get something that we call homogeneous nucleation, where the H2O molecules just start sticking to each other without any surface at all. And I think that's what the CERN experiment may have been uh, trying to get at. I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, but there are other experiments in what we call cloud chambers, where we study the properties of different particles. They're called aerosol particles. And how, uh, what is their propensity to serve as a nucleus to start a, a droplet? That's something that we do study in cloud chambers. There's a long history of, of research on that. Uh, but again, it doesn't solve the problem of predicting what kind of particles you're going to have and also uh, handling the complexity of clouds and the fact that they're so heterogeneous and, um, and so big and complicated and, and our computers by comparison are so um, feeble, <laughs> even though they're very big computers. And I, I suppose I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, you, you have the, these sort of big forecasts over different scales. You have the sort of global climate models, you have the, the more regional ones, and then they all kind of feed into these different scenarios, which are summarized in the IPCC reports. And 
and you often hear sort of clouds mentioned as the thing we need to improve but I mean how much uncertainty do they add at the moment to the models are we, are we talking about something which could swing it hugely either way or is it just are we, are we in the details of this well there's a few aspects to the clouds that are uncertain so one is what I was talking about earlier with the global radiation budget and the global warming rate of global warming and the feedback from clouds. And that's still uncertain to a factor of more than two. So uh, the amount of temperature rise of the planet that you get from uh, doubling carbon dioxide or, or any other particular specified um, thing that you would do is uncertain to more than a factor of two, maybe as much as a factor of three. And if you're trying to predict that from first principles, there's a few ways to try to get at this. One is to predict it based on your understanding of how the atmosphere works, and then clouds are the problem, essentially. There's a, you can also look at past climate changes and try to back out from those what will happen, and that turns out to be a, a useful avenue as well. But from the sort of first principles point of view, it's, it's really clouds. But that's not the only reason clouds are, are an issue, because also, if you want to know, let's say the globe warms by two degrees. All right. What's going to happen to the weather in, in London? Well, uh, it depends on what happens to clouds over the UK. And you could get, um, depending on how clouds function in the atmosphere, you, you could either see increases or decreases in precipitation in any given region that you pick because precipitation comes from clouds. And not only that, but the circulations that bring you rain are influenced by the greenhouse effect exerted by the clouds. Because uh, greenhouse effect doesn't only warm the whole planet, it warms one little region. And that hot air rises and that rising of the air changes the, the circulation mm -hmm. patterns and brings water in and so on. And so uh, it there's this whole cascade of effects that depends on our ability to say what the clouds are. That's why it's such a fundamental problem. Because you sometimes see larger scale maps which indicate that certain regions will be drier overall in a warmer in a warmer mm -hmm. uh, planet and certain regions which will be um, wetter. I mean, is, is it fair to say, you know, you, you can say that with some confidence, but then when you zoom in, you, you're talking about the sort of finer level of detail. It's difficult to say for a particular place, this will likely be, uh, I mean, you, you use London as an example, but if you were to pick sub-Saharan Africa, you know, could, could you say with some confidence there, for example, that it, it will be drier because of uh, a warmer I planet? think in much of Africa, and in fact, much of the tropics, there's a huge uncertainty right now. And a lot of it is attributed to clouds, probably not all of it. There's other things that we also need, like um, the interaction between vegetation and the atmosphere is another thing that we don't know. How, we even know less about that than we do about clouds in a way. And um, that also is quite important. Uh, so those those two and maybe some other things mean that in some parts of the world, we really can't say much. Other parts we can. So getting back to the UK again, pretty much everything that far north is going to be rainier in a warmer climate. I think we're pretty confident of that. Um, and it doesn't depend on the, the reason why that is, is just down to some thermodynamic principles that don't really depend too much on the clouds. But yeah, once you get down to any more detail of that, you know, how, how much we expect the Mediterranean to dry, but we don't know how bad that's going to be. Uh, other, other parts of the world at similar latitudes to the Mediterranean are also expected. So Southwestern United States is likely to dry out. 
but um, yeah, it's there's a lot of regional uncertainties to do with these un- poorly understood physical processes. One of the big fears with climate change is that we're forcing the atmosphere at such a pace that we'll hit a threshold that could trigger runaway climate change. Our incomplete understanding of the climate system could mean we're blindly stumbling towards climate chaos. Katrin Meisner, who is also based at the University of New South Wales, is interested in climate feedback mechanisms and the tipping points in past climate changes. So if we look in the past, the climate has never really been stable. So it was pretty stable over the Holocene, like when our civilization um, developed. But if you go back, they, they were always jumps in the climate system. So the, the climate system doesn't need humans to, to, to change and to change quickly. Um, and what I'm a little bit concerned about, although we're getting much, much better, it's really there's been lots of progress in the past few years, but, but the climate models are still very stable. So you really need to nudge them to to reproduce some some of the climate change that we've seen in, in the past. And and the same is also true if you if you go into future projections, you see that it's a very smooth increase in temperature and in in all other parameters you might be interested in. Now that the climate system is not going to do anything smooth, <laughs> there's some <laughs> inherent instability. So I'm so that's one part of my research. And the other part of my research is to to look at at, at climate states in the past that were as warm or warmer than today, just to see what we can understand of what we know happened in the past, how we can feed mm-hmm. this understanding into what we think might happen in the future. I mean, can, can, can you perhaps give some examples um, of, well, I say recent past, but geologically speaking, the sort of fairly recent past when there has been a, a really abrupt change, a sudden abrupt change in climate. Sure, I can give you a lot. <laughs> so I think um, <laughs> one, so, so one, one, one interesting one, for example, is this last deglaciation. So 20,000 years ago, we were in an ice age. And that means that over North America, we had huge, a huge ice shield that was four kilometers thick. And we had ice in Scandinavia and Eurasia. And it was quite cold. It was probably about five to six degrees colder than today. And then for some reason, these ice sheets started to melt and it became warm. And the CO2 in the atmosphere rose by 190, yeah, not 100, 90 ppm. Um, within, and, and this increase in CO2 happened within 8,000 years. So what we're doing right now is, of course, much, much faster. So within 100 years, we we increased by, oh, God, I have to calculate, but over 150, right? Yeah, over 150, 140 ppm. Um, but it's interesting to understand how the climate system did this on its own, because the triggers, so we think the triggers have to do something with um the amount of insulation that the Earth receives in the Northern Hemisphere during summertime, because that, that varies a little bit because we are wobbling around the sun, right? There's something called the Milankovitch cycles and, and they're different um, parameters and, and they have different frequencies. But but the amount of the, the difference in insulation is actually not enough to explain the whole huge consequence so their feedbacks within the system that then kicked in. So the, the ice sheet started to melt. 
but then something happened in the ocean that got some CO2 out into the atmosphere and with more CO2 it got warmer, that melted more ice, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's one thing I'm interested in, to really see how these different components in the climate system act together to in, in positive feedbacks to reinforce a first change. And, and you, yeah, you also mentioned in your work, you, you're looking at periods in the past when it was, it was warmer than it is today. Is that to try and understand then the conditions which led to that situation? And, and can, you give, can you give an example maybe of um, the past two or three times when, when it has been warmer? And, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose the, 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 the reasons for that, as far as you understand. So there's two different things. You can ask yourself, when was it warmer or when did we have higher greenhouse gases? So, um, for example, the last interglacial, that's not that long ago, 120,000 years, that was the last one was warm before we went through this ice age, um, was maybe slightly warmer. It was warmer than pre-industrial. I'm actually not convinced it was much warmer than the planet we're in right now. Um, and that was mostly due to orbital parameters. So that was mostly due to insulation changes, and especially the summers in the, in, in the high northern latitudes were warmer, and then you had some feedbacks that just made it warmer. But I, I personally think what's more interesting to look at is if you go further back and try to find episodes where CO2 was the same than it is today. And, and then if you look at our climate archives at, at the proxies to reconstruct the climate during that time, um, you get an idea of how the climate looks in equilibrium under the forcing we're giving today, because it is not an equilibrium today, right? I mean, we're kicking it really hard and quickly with high CO2 concentrations, but it's still trying to adjust. It's still, the, the climate system, they, there's a lot of water in the climate system and water has a very high heat capacity, right? There's also ice in the climate system. Ice is a really high latent heat, so, um, so it takes time to adjust. So we are not in equilibrium. The, the climate is just trying to adjust to our current 415 um, ppm um, atmospheric concentrations. So if you go back in time and try to find the last time we had um, atmospheric CO2 concentrations about as, as we do today, um, then they go actually back 3 million years to the to the Pliocene. <laughs> And um, in terms of humans who were around, um, Lucy, I think, the, what is that? Uh, uh, I don't even know how that's called, a Homet Afranzis or something. <laughs> but, but Lucy was basically <laughs> walking around. After we'd sapiens again. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And if you go back then, what we always find very, uh, not frightening, but just um, yeah, one should keep in mind is that the climate back then under the same greenhouse gas concentration was much, much warmer than what we have today. Sea level was much higher, like meters, meters, meters higher, it's probably 10 or even more meters higher than today. And um, and and especially the polar regions, it was much, much warmer. And then if you're interested, for example, if we would um, continue, to emit carbon concentration, uh, our carbon emissions as we do right now, um, business as usual then by 2050, which is not that far in the future, and um, we would probably hit about 550 ppm. And that's, uh, last time we hit that was 25 million years back, not human, no, no humans, it was a very different climate. So I, I really like this 
past climates that are that happened a long time ago because they give us an understanding of the world they're heading into um, if we stabilize our CO2 concentrations and if we don't find a way to actually lower our CO2 concentrations. And, and I know it's, it's, it's a question that comes up a lot, but this, this idea that, you know, perhaps locked in heating, you know, if, if we were to um, just somehow magically reach net zero tomorrow, do, do you think, you know, as far as your understanding goes, is there already kind of extra heating in the system which is going to um, be affected by these feedback systems which will lead to further warming? Yeah, so if, if you completely cut the emissions, completely, like no, no cheating zero emissions, like mm. <laughs> really cut the emissions, <laughs> um, they would have actually um, some effects kicking in that take more carbon up out of the atmosphere. They, they're already working right now. The ocean will continue to take up carbon. The land will take up carbon on longer timescales. Weathering will take up some carbon. So if we stop emitting, what we will see is CO2 concentrations actually going down again. But there is some warming, even if we manage to do that, there is still warming in store, but it, it wouldn't be as dramatic as if we continue mid and continue to keep the CO2 as high up or even increase them more. So years ago, they said they, that we already committed to yeah, I, no, I don't know numbers, but uh, for, so my understanding is, for example, for this agreement, um, understanding is that we already passed 1.5 degrees or committed warming, mm -hmm. but um, we still have a chance to maybe um, keep it under two. We aggressively cut the emissions. Goes without saying, we we need to do something. But did you do you think at the moment the the sort of in, the international um, pledges are you know go go far enough, or, or do you think we need to um, need to do more? <laughs> the big question. So right right now we we with the pledges that have been made, even if all the countries actually acknowledge these pledges, because <laughs> who knows if they will or if they want. And as far as I know, really no no way to force a country to, of course, um, do what they say would do. Um, but the the, the the plus are not enough to keep not enough to keep us under 1.5 and there's right now not enough to keep us under degrees which is the guardrail that the Paris agreement came up with and which is already a bit risky for, for some of our tipping points so um yeah we need way more aggressive pledges In the second part of this climate series next week, I'll turn my attention to some of the technology solutions for climate change. In the meantime, you can read more about these topics in an article I've written called Getting Physical with the Climate Crisis. That's free to read now on physicsworld.com. And you can also find out much more about the key research questions in climate science by signing up to Environmental Research 2021. It's a free to attend virtual event running from the 15th to the 19th of November, hosted by IOP Publishing, which also publishes Physics World. The scientific programme will cover climate science, energy, infrastructure and sustainability, environmental and global health, and ecology and biodiversity. Find out more about that event and a link to register 
by visiting the podcast section on the Physics World website. Thanks for joining today and I'll be back next week. Physics World